Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. Then John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us and the house of his servant David. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all his days, all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break again upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Thus far, the reading of God's words and God's blessing to you, Will, as you speak. Thank you for that reading, Doreen. And uh, thank you to all of you for being here this morning. Uh, some of you were here yesterday as well, so you're giving us uh, two time slots in your weekend, so I'm grateful for that. Uh, we had uh, a great banquet yesterday, and we owe a big debt of thanks to, uh, to the committee, Aaron and, uh, and Helen, for all of the work that they did um, giving us a good meal. Yeah, thank you. So we are uh, at the second week of Advent. Uh, last week we gathered together at, uh, at First Mennonite Church and sang, uh, sang some beautiful carols together. The, the theme of, of Advent this year comes very much from our reading last week. Uh, in Jeremiah 33, uh, in verse 16, it says, In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety, and this is what he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. This isn't one of the names for, for Jesus that we remember and, and use in our, uh, in our prayer and in our liturgy and in our songs. But it does speak about the kind of hope that the people had, the, the kind of person that they were hoping for. Now, we, it seems that we've shifted as a society. We don't really have uh, nicknames. Uh, even when I was a kid, I remember when I got to grade 9, uh, and then uh, grade 9 was when 
all of the junior high schools would sort of send their kids to high school, so we were this big conglomeration of a whole bunch of different schools bringing all these different cultures in. Um, and there was one guy who, uh, who kind of stood out because he was huge. He was six feet tall, and the rest of us, um, myself especially, hadn't quite reached uh, our full adult height. Uh, and so he was this, this tall guy, and he was athletic, so he was the star of the basketball team, the star of the volleyball team. And so uh, his, his name was Brian, uh, but that didn't quite work for, for him. Uh, he said, he, when he would introduce himself, he would say, people call me Moose. Okay, Moose, that's it. And it sort of felt like, okay, uh, then we can be part of the thing. There's a... There's, there's this group of people that call them that, and if we call them that, then we're part of that same group of people. Uh, and it made sense when we would watch him play volleyball and he would do a big play, we would all yell out moose, and it was exciting. <clears throat> and then, scandal upon scandal, I realized uh, when people from his, uh, his elementary school, uh, when I was talking to them, they said, uh, we never called him moose. I'm like, what? what do you, he said people... People call him Moose because he asks them to, uh, but he came up with it. We never called him Moose. Well, you can't make up your own nickname. There's got to be some kind of rule against that. Uh, I saw Moose a while later, and uh, this was, you know, five, ten years after we uh, graduated, and it seemed odd to approach him because I didn't know if I should call him Brian or if I should call him Moose. It seemed odd for me to address a full-grown man, an adult person, by a nickname, um, but I had never called him Brian before either. So that didn't quite feel right. Uh, so I didn't say his name, I just said, hey, how's it going? And uh, luckily he remembered me. <clears throat> but we don't really live in a nickname culture. Uh, but when we read through Scripture, we see very much names are a part of their uh, regular um, conversations with each other and uh, their, uh, their religious practice as well. So when the name of the king that Jeremiah is prophesying about here uh, is, is given here, the, his name will be the Lord is our righteousness. Nobody says, okay, well, I guess that's what it'll say on his birth certificate. They understand this is a, this is a nickname. This is a kind of a, a designation. And uh, the whole people of Israel get this because um, their, their namesake was Jacob. For a long time, he was Jacob, which already has a meaning to it. He was called Jacob because he was going to be the deceiver, the trickster. All of that is kind of wrapped into his name. And then he's walking through the desert. He's on his way back to apologize to his brother, to make things right with his family. And on the way, he encounters God. He encounters an angel. The story is kind of uh, mystical. And in that encounter, Jacob wrestles. Uh, and, and I love this story. It's one of my favorite in the Bible. He wrestles with God all through the night. And he's asking for a blessing. Right? Jacob, his identity is wrapped up in the blessing that he stole from his father, the, the one that he tricked out of his father, stole from his brother. 
That's his identity. And now he's asking for a blessing. He insists on getting a blessing. He feels like he's earned a blessing through all this wrestling. And so uh, he will get a blessing, but wrapped up in that is he will get a new name. He's not going to be the deceiver, the trickster anymore. He is going to be Israel. He is going to be the one who wrestles. He wrestles with God and has overcome. Or simply, he wrestles. That's his new name. That's his nickname. That's his new identity. And so, also, not just the name, but he also has his his hip kind of twisted out of joint. And so he's going to walk with a limp the rest of his life to reinforce the identity. What's the deal with Jacob? Oh, he has a new name now. He wrestles. Okay, well, what's the deal with his limp? Yeah, he wrestles. That's Jacob. He's got a new name, a new identity. There are some areas of our society where this still works. Uh, and, and forgive me for, for making another sports metaphor here. Uh, I have a few friends who, um, by some, I don't know why, they've become fans of the Montreal Canadiens. And there's a long history to that. They might be 20 years old, 40 years old, 60 years old. There's a history long before them that they're sort of buying into. And you, you hear the stories, you repeat the stories, uh, the, the place has become uh, religious. Uh, I was in Montreal a while ago, and I, I tell people I visited a whole bunch of cathedrals. Um, many of them had, had gift shops in the cathedrals, including the Old Forum. Uh, the Old Forum is where they used to play hockey. They don't anymore. They've, they've moved to, to the Bell Center. But the Old Forum was trans, uh, kind of transported, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, transformed, uh, into a, a shopping center. Uh, but they couldn't just make it a shopping center. They still had the original ice surface marked off with statues, with plaques, with billboards, and then a gift shop so that you could, if you were there because of your hockey loyalties, you could spend money and bring home the same uh, artifacts that you could get from the Notre Dame, from the other cathedrals around there, because this was a place of, of religious significance. Um, anyways, there are a long list of, of famous hockey players, many of them who had kind of picked up nicknames. One of them who didn't need a nickname, though, was Patrick Roy. Uh, Patrick Roy was the, was the goalie when I was uh, a kid in Montreal, and his name... Roi means king. And people understood he was the king. He was the king of the team. He was the king of the league. He was unbeatable. And so he was the king. And uh, that was, he didn't need the nickname because his name already signified the royalty with which the fans had, had given him, elevated him above everybody else. Well, eventually that relationship soured. And they picked up some new goalies. Some of them were okay. Most of them uh, weren't able to live up to the legacy of the king. Uh, they, they added a goalie whose name was Andre Rasico. Uh, Andre Rasico had a, had a pretty good junior career. Um, he was French-Canadian, so kind of fit into that culture. But he had a rough go of it uh, with the team, and it just there was so much pressure 
from the legacy of the king that if you weren't good, if, if you were just mediocre, and to be mediocre at the NHL level, like Andre Rasico was, is already an accomplishment. But if you weren't great, you were bad in Montreal. And so he let in a, a few more goals than the fans thought he should, and he will, until his dying days, be called Red Light Rasico. Andre Red Light Rasico, because when the people would score on him, the lights would come on, and he was Red Light Rasico. Not a good nickname. Right? Nicknames carry power. Uh, they carry a legacy with them. So this is supposed to be Jesus' nickname, that God is our righteousness. Well, fast forward uh, to the book of Luke. And the people have been waiting for this king. People have been waiting for the deliverer that was promised in the book of Jeremiah. People have been waiting and their anticipation is building. And here is Zechariah. Zechariah is, is a priest. Zechariah works within the, the temple system and he's been given this message and full of joy, full of expectation, he sings this song that Doreen read for us before. And this is, it seems to be, and I don't, I'm far too young to be complaining about how today's society sucks and it was better before. Um, but there are some things that we're missing, I, I think. So there are some things that, that made sense before that sort of don't. Um, for me, when, when we were ready to have children we had a conversation about would we start having children? What would we do um, to make that more possible? Uh, at the beginning, we didn't want children, so then we had a big conversation about what we would do to make sure there were no children. Right? These are conversations that we have that are entirely a luxury of our time. And so when the child arrived, it was partially the result of our planning. Okay, well, we are ready to have a child. Here's a child. Okay, we're not ready for a child for a little while. Now we're ready again. Okay, here's a child. Right? This is entirely inconsistent with the vast majority of human history. Where all of a sudden, okay, we are going to put ourselves in a position where a child might come, and so we're going to be ready for a child whenever it comes. Okay, we're in that position. Here's a child. Okay, uh, we're going to have to be ready now. And then there would be some people who were like, okay, we are in that position. Where is the child? Where is the child? They couldn't go to their doctor for uh, fertility treatments. They couldn't uh, research the physiological, chemical problems that were causing it. They wanted a child, and there wasn't a child. So we get to plan for our children, and when they don't come according to our plans, then we can dig into science and medical research. But Zechariah doesn't have that as part of his reality. So Zechariah and his wife want a child. Planning wasn't really a, a part of the, the equation. Zechariah wanted a child. His wife wanted a child. There was no child. And so on top of the expectation that the whole people of Israel were feeling for this king, for this one who was supposed to deliver them, Zechariah has a sense of expectation for something else. And they had already given up hope, it seems. And then, in answer to prayer, and then a miraculous 
arrival of an angel and the, the telling of a child coming. So then Zechariah, because he's so excited, because Zechariah has so much hope and so much excitement, this isn't just going to be a regular child, as though there is such a thing as a regular child. This isn't going to be uh, just a regular person. This is going to be somebody special because the circumstances are special, because the story is special. Now, if you talk to any parent and they tell you that their children are not special, uh, then you need to reevaluate who that person is. We all think our children are special. And uh, that's been one of the, the learning curves for me as a parent. When I talk to my teachers, my kids' teachers, like, I don't think this teacher realizes the specialness of my child. And they've got a classroom full of special children, so I need to kind of temper my expectations. But Zechariah knows his child will be special. But he sings this song partly about the child's specialness, but also about God's. And so he sings about God. He has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors. Right? Zechariah now gets to participate in what so many people around him are experiencing, uh, a family. He gets to do this when he thought he wouldn't. But now this whole situation has helped him to zoom out and to see that something bigger is happening. And within the promise of the angel, he sees that this is part of that bigger promise being fulfilled. That God's promise, the, the promise of God's mercy, is coming. There is a solemn pledge made to Abraham. The people were waiting for this pledge to be fulfilled. And then he writes... He has granted that we would be rescued from the power of our enemies so that we could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in God's eyes for as long as we live. In holiness and righteousness. <clears throat> righteousness has a few different uses in, in Scripture, especially in, in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> righteousness can be uh, a status, uh, sort of uh, uh, a you know uprightness, a goodness that is uh, because somebody does good things, you can have righteous behavior. And when it comes with righteousness, then there's sort of an understanding that this good behavior is the result of this uh, promise. But then there's also the righteousness that is sort of a, a status that's kind of the result of the good behavior. Right? So there's, there's righteousness that's the result of good behavior, uh, and then there's good behavior resulting from uh, God's promise. Right? There's, there's good behavior that's resulting from the status of being right. <clears throat> which is, I think, a, a, an ongoing challenge for us, that we want to be righteous. We want to live out God's promise in our world. And so then we will do good things, and that will give us a status, and from that status, we do good things. And then it's sort of the cycle that goes around and around. Except there's a problem. 
that it's sort of a, a loop that repeats itself, but you can't quite get up into it by yourself. Right? You can't earn the status because you haven't been doing the things, and you can't do the things because you don't have the status. And so this is kind of the challenge of, of the prophets, that Israel couldn't be good uh, because God hadn't blessed them, and God wouldn't bless them until they were good. And it felt like they had a blessing, and they were being good, and they had uh, followed a good prophet, a good leader, a good king, whatever, and then they would fall away again. And then they would lose the status, and then the whole agonizing process repeats again. So, then if God becomes the righteousness, if God becomes the righteousness, then you're already in the loop. Then you don't have to worry about starting it on your own. You don't have to worry about getting there yourself. You're already there. You're already in the relationship. Within the relationship, then you live out the values of the king. You, you live out God's values. And then because you do that, you demonstrate you're in the relationship, but you were there already. So this magical child, this miraculous child comes. <clears throat> they name him John. Uh, he lives in the desert. Uh, he, he eats locust and wild honey. Uh, this is uh, Luke chapter 3. Uh, and so I'll read little excerpts here from, uh, from this chapter. So verse 3, it says, John went through the region of the Jordan River calling for people to be baptized to show they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Right? So he's calling out to them to participate in this relationship. He's, he's out in the wilderness, and all of this is symbolic. Right? All of this is prophetic, right? So he's not John, the son of Zechariah. This is John the Baptist, right? This is his nickname. This is his identity. This is what he's doing. So he's in the wilderness, which is a symbol of chaos and disorder. That when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, wandering through the desert for 40 years... They were in the wilderness. That's, it's shorthand for they were living in a time of chaos and instability. They didn't know who they were. They didn't know where they were going. They were in the wilderness. And then John comes, and uh, the prophecy is fulfilled in him. So in verse 4, it says, This is just as it was written in the scroll of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So John is, is referring people to the prophet. A voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. <clears throat> so when Isaiah is saying there's going to be a voice in the wilderness, there's a double meaning here. Is this going to be somebody calling out from the desert? Or is this somebody calling out in chaotic times? The answer is yes, both of those things. So here is John, he is calling out from the wilderness, he's calling out from a time of chaos and disorder. Who are we as, as Israelites? Are we 
simply going to be subjects to the Romans, just like we were subjects to the Greeks, just like we were subjects to the Persians, just like, just like, just like? Or are we something different? Is there, is the promise of God still coming, or have we been forgotten? All of this was in the minds of the people. All of this was, was part of what Zechariah was responding to and what now John is speaking into. Prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way. God is coming and we need to be ready. We need to be living out the righteousness already so that when God comes, the loop continues. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. The crooked will be made straight. The rough places made smooth. All humanity will see God's salvation. Uh, So part of the trouble when we look at these texts is these words take on religious meaning and not much else. So righteousness for us is just somebody is is righteous if, if they don't do anything wrong. And we don't feel like we are that person, so we don't think that word applies to us. Salvation, we think, well, that's going to heaven. Well, no, salvation is being saved. Salvation is being rescued. Salvation is being redeemed. Uh, So here, and all of those, it's hard to take the religiousness out of those words, Um, but John is painting a bigger picture. Maybe he's going to be calling out from the actual wilderness. Maybe he's going to be speaking in a time of chaos. But just because he's speaking doesn't mean that all of the valleys will literally be filled in with, with dirt and be turned into plains. No, now we're, it's clear that this is prophetic language. All of the parts of our society where there are peaks and valleys, all the parts of the economic reality where there are highs and lows, that's going to be leveled. All of the parts of our society where there are important people and unimportant people, leveled. All of the, the parts of our society where there are uh, people who are special because of their beauty, because of their intelligence, leveled. All of that. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. Their crooked will be made straight. The people whose lives are defined by crookedness will be straightened. And the rough places made smooth. All humanity will see God's salvation. So this isn't just a a prediction of who will come, but of who we will become as a result. So we want to participate in God's righteousness. We want to be part of the loop of doing good and being good and then doing good because we are good and then being good because we have been doing good. We want to be part of that. And we want, it, we want that loop to continue. But for, for this to become true, for God's salvation to arrive, for God to be our righteousness, then it isn't enough to just wait for Jesus to level the hills and valleys. It isn't enough to wait for Jesus to, to flatten out the mountains. That's our work. It isn't enough for Jesus to just say, okay, now rich and poor are equal. That's up to us as his followers to say, okay, in these ways we will make the rich and the poor equal. It isn't enough for us to just appreciate the beauty of the the poetic prophecies that are presented to us. 
It's our job to take ownership of this, to participate in this, and level the hills and valleys in our society and in our families. For, for our church, historically, uh, we have retreated from society because of the evils that we saw. And for a long time, society worked like that, that immigrants came to Canada and they were given a little community, and the Ukrainian community operated on their own, and the French community operated on their own, and the Mennonite community operated on their own. We don't live in that world anymore. We all blend together. And we have, we have two options. We can give up what we were before and just accept a, a bland new reality. Or we can enter into that multinational, uh, multicultural reality, bringing with us the things that have given us life and value before. This is who we are. This is who God has called us to be. And so when we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, something has to change. Something has to change within us that we heed John's call to level the hills and valleys, to bring down the mountains and make a straight path for God with our behavior, uh, with our receiving of other people, and in the world that we seek to build around us. Let us be encouraged and strengthened to do that as part of the kingdom. Amen.